Well, I hope you're all ready to feel guilty. <laughs> uh, it's really good to be here with you this morning. As Mary Beth said, uh, I'm Nate, uh, Nate Pyle. I'm uh, originally from the west side of the state, from Holland. I uh, grew up there, spent 28 years of my life there. It's been fun to be here uh, just uh, yesterday and today. Uh, somebody from who was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor attends here. Uh, found out this morning that the guy who lived next to me at, in Phelps Hall while I was at Hope College is here. Yep, right there. And then uh, we are also somebody who attended the same church as a big portion of my family in Zealand. So I mean, just a lot of connections, which is a lot of fun. But even more so than that, it's fun to be here because uh, this is my good friend Mike's church. Uh, Mike is obviously your pastor. I think you knew that. Um, he is, over the years, we've been in Ritter, the Ritter Leadership Initiative together, and he has become a dear friend. He's somebody that I respect in a lot of ways, somebody that I continue to learn from uh, uh, almost every time we get t- uh, an opportunity to spend time together. Uh, we have co-taught in Ontario for the last five years or so. That's kind of coming to a close. Uh, but what you have allowed Mike to do in terms of giving him space to participate in the Ritter Leadership Initiative, to go to the Bowen Center and study family systems theory and take that learning and then share that with the broader church has blessed me and my congregation and blessed countless congregations in both the RCA and the CRC. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being generous with your pastor. Thank you for allowing him to continue with this professional development um, and thank you for giving space for me to come and hopefully just repay a little bit of everything that has been given to me through Mike and therefore through you all. Be encouraged because the ministry of MRC is not just contained within the walls of the church here, but extends well beyond the church into Ontario, Indiana, uh, Wisconsin, New York, I mean, all over the place. So thank you. Well done. Keep up the good work. Uh, we will be in Luke chapter 7, so if you want a Bible, if you got a Bible next to you or one you brought home with you, go ahead and uh, take it out. Turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 is where we are going to begin this morning. As we get ready to go to God's Word, would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, above the concerns that we came in here with, above the burdens that we're carrying, above the expectations that we have, above our schedules for the next week, above our hopes and our dreams, above our fears and our worries, above everything. May Jesus Christ be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, yet you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, excuse me, among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. As Luke tells this story, he tells it in such a fashion where he expects the listener to sort of run and keep up with him as he gets going. Now, for us as Western people, 2,000 years removed from both the story itself and the culture in which this event happened, it's difficult for us to keep up with Luke's story because there are so many cultural traditions that are taking place in this story that are foreign to us. So we've got to do some work to unpack what those cultural traditions are so that we can really feel the force of what's happening in this passage. We begin with what happens in verse 40. In a sort of a nonchalant, throwaway line, Simon refers to Jesus as teacher. Now this tells us a little bit about what Simon thought about Jesus. Jesus, Simon did think that Jesus was a rabbi and a teacher, but not necessarily a rabbi and teacher that he respected. He only thought of Jesus as a rabbi to to a certain degree. And we know this because tradition taught that to have a rabbi or a biblical scholar into your house for a dinner was a huge honor. This, this was the honor above all honors. Uh, in Genesis 18, if you think all the way back to the Old Testament, Genesis 18, we have the guy named Abraham. And Abraham is at his tent, he's at his camp or his house or whatever it is, and three guests come to visit with Abraham. Abraham rolls out the red carpet for these guests, kills the fatted calf, he's going to put on a big meal, the whole deal, just welcomes them with this uh, huge display of hospitality. And then we're given this little tidbit in that story, where before these three guests were told, Abraham bowed low to the ground before them. Now, This idea of bowing low to the ground before somebody, I mean, we understand that image. It's an image of honor and respect. And so Abraham is showing these guests honor and respect. 
the rabbinic tradition picked up on this idea of showing your guests honor and respect, in particular those who were rabbis and scholars. And so the rabbinic literature says in one place, let's see if I got it, oh, right there, if one partakes of a meal at which a scholar is present, it is as if he feasted on the divine effulgence of the divine presence. I'll be completely honest with you. I had to look up what the word effulgence meant. I had no idea. But it means like brilliance to the extreme. So think of a bright light, something that's stunning, something that that dazzles you. Right? It's absolutely blinding. What the rabbinic tradition taught then is to have dinner with a rabbi, to have dinner with a scholar, was like feasting on the divine brightness. Just so we're clear, this is also true of having dinner with pastors. Just so we're clear. All right? <laughs> so if Simon truly thought that Jesus was a rabbi, if he thought that he was a scholar of any worth, he would have treated him like royalty. But he doesn't. Simon doesn't even offer him water to wash his hands with. He does not offer him oil to put on his head. He does not offer him a towel to wash off with. Now that would have been extremely customary to do in this particular time. If you've ever been to the Middle East, I'm sure you've heard of it. I mean, it's legendary, but if you've ever been to the Middle East, you've experienced uh, hospitality like no other. To, to welcome a guest in your home is, is a huge privilege, and hospitality is, is, is an opportunity. Uh, hospitality is one of the highest values within the culture. And so if you're going to throw a party and you want to be a respectable host, you are going to give your guests exactly what they need. You're going to give them water to wash their hands. You're going to give them oil to, to anoint their heads with. You're going to give them the towel. You're going to give them everything you need. they need because you want your guests to have a fine experience. and You want them to know how much they're valued. In fact, custom went so far with this idea of washing your hands, anointing your head with oil, that it was said uh, it wasn't even fit to offer grace before a meal if you haven't washed your hands. The Babylonian Talmud says this, the absence of oil is a bar to the saying of grace. Just as a dirty person is unfit for temple service, so dirty hands unfit one for saying grace. And every mother says amen. <laughs> right? The fact that Simon does none of these for Jesus is not just a breach of social contract and social understanding surrounding hospitality towards guests. Simon's failure to extend these basic tenets of hospitality are an insult to Jesus himself. Essentially, Simon is saying to Jesus, You're here in my home, but I don't care that much about you. It would have been such an insult that it would have been completely acceptable for Jesus to say to Simon, you have offended me and I'm leaving. But Jesus does not. He stays. And all of this, this whole scene is taking place in front of all the other guests and those who are in Simon's house. And one of the people who is present in Simon's house 
is a woman who is known to be a sinner. Now, we don't know exactly what it is that this woman did. The text doesn't tell us. Tradition teaches us that she was, in fact, a prostitute. And we know that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, so it's very likely that she was a prostitute. But that raises a really interesting question. Why is she there? Right? Like, Jesus is going to the house of a Pharisee. And then they're having a dinner, right? So you think it's like this, this social gathering at which people had to have an invitation. And yet in this house, at this place, at the, the, the house whose owner is a Pharisee who likely, likely looked down on this woman as a sinner and possibly as a prostitute. Yet despite this whole thing, she's there. Why? Did she hear that Jesus was going to be coming to Simon? Like, Simon's throwing this party. Jesus is going to be there, and she decided that she's going to crash the party. Is that how she ended up at this party? I mean, because we know she wasn't invited, right? So why? How did she end up in that room? That was my question as I studied this text. And and I'll be honest, I had a hard time finding an answer. Like commentaries didn't really address it. They put out some theories, but nothing really satisfied me. And then I came across this great book by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Um, and he looks at particularly the Gospel of Luke through the Middle Eastern eyes. He's a scholar, New Testament scholar, who's lived in the Middle East for 20 or 30 years. He knows it really well, in and out, all of that sort of stuff. And he had in his book on this a footnote that said this. At traditional Middle Eastern village meals, the outcasts of the community are not shut out. They sit quietly on the floor against the wall and at the end of the meal are fed. Their presence is a compliment to the host who is thereby seen as so noble that he even feeds the outcasts of the community. So when Jesus comes to Simon's house, he shows up as an invited guest. But all along the wall are these social outcasts, these sinners, maybe, maybe the sick, the infirmed, maybe the mentally uh, 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 enfeebled, like, 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 whoever. Like They're all there along the wall, and they're watching this scene play out. Now, was the woman there then as simply someone who was going to try to get some food after the meal was over? Was she just there for the leftovers, or did she have some ulterior motive for showing up at Simon's house that night? It it seems like she came with other plans. and, and, And the reason we can assume that is because she has this alabaster jar of perfume, something that was very expensive, something you didn't just carry around with you on your person. She brought that for a specific purpose. Now, the question then is, is why was she there with the alabaster jar of perfume? It's likely at some point that she had heard Jesus preach about the forgiveness of sins. She obviously knew who he was. So we can make some assumptions that she heard Jesus preach a message of forgiveness. She heard about grace and mercy. She heard that it was possible for her to be reconciled to God. Her, a prostitute. Her, that so many have written off. She could be once again called a daughter of God. 
And it's likely that this woman not only heard Jesus' message, but she also believed it to be true. I think one of the things that I've gotten wrong about this passage as I've thought about it over the years is that I've made the assumption that the reason that the woman showed up at Simon's house, the reason she anointed Jesus' feet with the perfume and washed it with her hair and tears is because she was hoping to earn forgiveness. She was hoping by her good act, Jesus would see her as worthy of salvation and then would extend it to her. But what's fascinating is that the early church fathers did not think that at all. In fact, they said that when this woman showed up to the house, she had already been forgiven of her sins. Just to give you a couple of examples, Ambrose, who lived in the 4th century, said only someone who had been forgiven much and therefore loved much could anoint Jesus' feet as the sinful woman did. There we go. Origen said she who owed the great debt and was forgiven, showed great love. How many of you thought I was going over the edge right there? A few of you did, yeah. And then a, uh, uh, I think he's an Iraqi guy who lived in the 11th century. His name's Ibn al-Tayyib, which is just a fabulous name, is it not? He says, there is no doubt that the woman previously heard the preaching of the Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and was anticipating a chance to make visible her thanks to the Christ and to confirm forgiveness of her sins and the salvation itself. So when Jesus, at the very end, says to this woman, your sins are forgiven, he's not pronouncing something new to this woman. Rather, he's affirming what's already taken place. And when he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, he's not saying it for her ears as much as he's saying it for everyone else in the room. That they might know that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. But we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves here. The woman came to the house that night to thank Jesus. She had heard the message of forgiveness of sins. She believed it. She received this gift of grace and mercy. And it appears that she showed up at the house to express her gratitude in this extravagant display by anointing an expensive perfume on the head of Jesus. So she positions herself along the wall waiting for her opportunity as the guests come in, as they prepare for the meal to be served. And as she's sitting along the wall, she sees Jesus come in. But when Jesus comes in, he is not given the customary greeting. He is not treated as a respected guest. He's not even really treated as a guest himself. Like all the the traditions, all the expectations surrounding what was socially acceptable regarding hospitality, were not extended Jesus. She sees no oil for his head. She sees no water for his hands, no towel to dry him off. He's not even greeted with a kiss. This rabbi who has given her so much, this man who preaches forgiveness, who restores dignity to the ones who are cast aside by society by eating and and, and spending time with those social outcasts, this man who has restored her dignity and her her personhood, her humanity in such a powerful way. This man isn't even given a proper welcome. And it burns in her heart. It breaks her. 
And so everything that she has planned is thrown out the window and she rushes over to Jesus and she breaks the alabaster jar of perfume and she pours it on his feet. She does something completely disregarding what is proper in order that Jesus might be elevated. And as she does this, she weeps. Again, why? Why is this woman weeping? Is it for the forgiveness of her sins? I mean, maybe. But my guess is if she has already believed that all of her sins have been forgiven, that she's already weeped quite a few times. Maybe instead she's crying because the man whom she loves so deeply, this man who has done so much for her, has been publicly humiliated. This man who she sees is beautiful is treated with contempt. And it rips her apart. And she weeps because of the the humiliation, because of the disrespect and the dishonor that is being showed to Jesus. Now Simon sees this. <laughs> and, and he thinks to himself, oh, surely this man, surely Jesus, is not a prophet. Because if he were really a prophet, he would know who this woman is, he would know what she has done, and he would not allow this act to continue. Now Jesus knows Simon's thoughts, right? He knows Simon's thoughts, and so he turns to Simon, you got to imagine the woman is still there taking her hair and rubbing his feet with it. And as she's doing that, Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, let me, let me tell you a little story. There were two men. Both of them owed a money lender a certain amount of money. One earned, uh, owed 50 denarii, $50. We'll just go with that. One owes $50. The other owes $500. Neither of them could repay the money lender. And so the money lender, in an act of grace, just cancels their debt. Tell me, Simon, which of these men is going to love the moneylender more? Simon says, the one who had the greater debt, the one who owed $500. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And then he turns to the woman. And, and, and I love this line. The whole story hinges on this one line. Jesus looks at the woman who's at his feet and he says, Simon, do you see her? (laughs) Which is kind of an odd question. Of course he sees her. I mean, she's the problem, right? Everybody sees what this woman is doing. But Jesus asks, do you see her? Do you really see her? Or do you simply see a sinner? And the fascinating connection in this text is between Simon's inability to see the woman and Simon's inability to see Jesus. There's a connection there. Those two things are intimately connected. Simon does not see this woman. He sees a sinner. He sees someone doing something they should not be doing. He sees an outcast. But he doesn't see the woman, not really. 
And because he can't see the woman, he can't see Jesus. Surely this man should not, is not a prophet. Surely this man is a fraud. He's putting on a pretense. He's hoodwinking everybody here because if he were really a prophet, he'd know who this woman is. This, I believe, highlights a simple truth for you and for me. Our ability to see Jesus is dependent on our ability to see people as Jesus sees them. Our ability to see Jesus is dependent on our ability to see other people as Jesus sees them. Because if our hearts are filled with judgment, then we'll fail to see the person in front of us, right? They'll become whatever it is that we see, whatever it is that we're judging them. They're a sinner. They're a thief. They're an addict. They're a Democrat. They're a Republican. They're not a Christian. They're Baptist. They're lazy. They're whatever it is that we choose to look at, but we don't see their humanity. We don't see the Imago Dei, the image of God that is impressed upon their soul. We miss out on all of that. And because we don't see that, we can't see Jesus clearly. Because we don't see a person who bears the image that Jesus was willing to die for, a a person who Jesus deemed is worthy of giving his life for, because we can't see that, we can't see Jesus. It, It makes me wonder if those times in our lives in which Jesus feels far off, like when he's just hard to see, And it feels like he's absent from our life, or we even wonder if Jesus is still at work in the world. It makes me wonder if we don't feel that because we can't see the people that Jesus is with. Because it's always going to surprise us who Jesus shows up with, right? It's always going to, like, we think Jesus is here in this space, because we're good Christian folk. I mean, we take time on a Sunday morning to show up here for an hour, or if I'm preaching an hour and 15 minutes, oh, get ready. Yeah, but wish you're, and you're going to sit here, so that just shows how good you are. You're going to pretend that, I'm just kidding, I could go on that all day. But we show up here and we think, well, Jesus is here with us because we're good. We're the, we're the religious ones. We're the moral ones. We're the upright ones. We're the ones who are making the good choices. We're the ones who are living our lives the way that we're supposed to be with. Of course Jesus is going to be with us. But all the while, Jesus is with the sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and anybody else that we see as other. If we do not see people rightly, We miss out on Jesus. We will fail to see him. But not only that, we'll begin to see ourselves in a distorted fashion. Simon couldn't see this woman. Simon couldn't see who Jesus was. And Simon couldn't see who he was. It was very evident to everybody in the room that this woman was the one who owed $500. It was very clear that she had the massive debt. Simon, on the other hand, if we're going to be honest, Simon 
I mean, nobody's perfect. We know that. They knew that. You had to atone for sins, right? So nobody's perfect. But Simon, we would have said, is the one who had a small debt, $50, easily overlooked. I mean, there's still debt there. But it's not that big. And what begins to happen is we play the comparison game and we look at the other person and we say, well, at least we're not that bad. At least our sin isn't that great. At least we're not doing that. And we take the focus off of our own lives and we just focus there and therefore we begin to see ourselves wrongly. But even if we only owe $50, there's still a debt there. There is something that is owed. And for us good Christian folk here on a Sunday morning. I do think this debt, language of debt, is helpful. I don't think it's always helpful when we're talking about sins, but I do think it's helpful a lot of the time. And maybe particularly for us as we think about this passage. And, and the reason that I think debt can be a helpful way of thinking about sin for us is because so often we frame sin as the things that we do that we should not do. God has some commands for how we are to live our lives, when we don't do those things, or we do things that we know that we're not supposed to do, right? When we break the commands, then it's very clear that we sin. But for most of us, the things that we aren't supposed to do, like we've got that now. I'm guessing most of us in the room, if we were to go, let's, let's just use the Ten Commandments. Most of us are probably good with eight or, eight or nine of them, Right? Most of slander might be the hard one. Not working on the Sabbath. Well, what's work these days? So, but we're good with most of them. But debt isn't just the things that I did that I should not do. Debt is a responsibility that I had that I failed to fulfill. Right? It's another way to think about sin. So we bought a house. We failed on our responsibility to pay the whole thing off with one check. So now we are in debt. We bought a new minivan because we keep having children for some reason. (laughs) And we didn't pay the whole thing off. Therefore, we failed in our responsibility. And now we have debts. I think if we begin to think about it like that, each of us would be able to say that there are places in our lives where we have failed in our responsibility to do what God has called us to do. And when we fail in our responsibilities, we incur a debt. And until we see that clearly, Jesus makes no sense. His death on the cross is absurd. His welcome of sinners is ridiculous. And our spending an hour of our precious time worshiping worshiping Him seems like an extravagant waste. Like pouring perfume on stinky feet. And so, if we want Jesus to make sense, we have to ask ourselves, What do I see? When you look at other people, do you see her? 
Do you see your neighbor? The person across the street? The parent who lets their kids run wild in the store? The coworker who bites everybody's backs? Do you see the one who you are quick to judge as a person? Or do you see them for whatever it is that you judge them of? Do you see Jesus? For Jesus, as Jesus is, not as we want Jesus to be, but do you see Jesus as he is? (laughs) Do you see the man who is willing to hang out with the people that you would prefer that he not hang out with? What, What do you see? Do you see yourself? And do you recognize your need for forgiveness? That this woman is not a mere sinner, but is an example and a model for all of us. Do you see her? Because only when you see her will you see Jesus clearly enough to love him as he deserves. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you you tirelessly work to restore dignity to us. That you never dehumanize us in any way as individuals. You never name us by what we have done or what we have not done but rather you have sent your Son into the world that the image of God might be restored, might be mended and put back together so that we might be made whole. We give you thanks for the forgiveness of sins. And may the grace that we have been shown and that we have received both be a grace that we celebrate, but a grace that we lavishly extend to those around us. To those whom grace is easy to give and to those who we may even label as our enemies. May your grace May we pour out your grace like an extravagant, lavish, beautiful perfume. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this time, I'll invite our ushers to receive our morning offering. If you did take some time to fill out the welcome card in the bulletin, you can place that in the offering plate as it is passed. If you're a guest with us here this morning, thank you for being here. We're glad that you have been here with us this morning. There is, um, There are some refreshments in the gym right across the narthex, the lobby area, right after the service, and we'd love for you to stay and have those with us. There's also a prayer team that will be right up here after the service. If you have something that is just on your heart this morning, please come, and they're happy to pray with you this morning. Sure, please come. <laughs>